Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. My guest today is a philosopher of time, space, and travel. She's the author of Absolute Time, and her fascination with philosophical questions around travel have led to her newest book, The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've said you try really hard to make difficult ideas easy to read. Do you have to stop yourself from using elevated language when writing? Yes, I do. I think as an academic, you're trained to use long words and and to use language that's really precise at the expense of readability. And, and so going back over my own writing, I often find that I have written some unintelligible <laughs> academic ease and it desperately needs rewriting. I think elevated language rarely elevates. It's like to put it simply is genius. I agree. And it is much harder to say a difficult thing simply than it is in a difficult fashion, I find. So let's get into travel. Maps are necessary for travel, but often flawed. What do we need to understand and respect about a map's limitations? And what kind of questions would a philosopher have for a cartographer? When I first began looking at the philosophy of maps, I actually didn't expect there to be very much to find. I thought that maps were really straightforward objects, representations of the world. You know, when I pick up a road map to drive to New York, um, the map tells me where the streets are, where the sites are, where the restaurants are. And I thought that was all there was to them. And then I dug a bit deeper and I began to find philosophers arguing that maps are really objects of power. So what a map does and doesn't show you is making all kinds of assumptions about the world, often in ways that are trying to persuade you about how the world is. So for example, what's featured in the center of a map is what the map maker often considers to be the most important. And if you look at world maps, this becomes really evident. So European world maps put Europe bang in the center. Chinese world maps put China in the center. Exactly the same with US made world maps. And then you began to realize that what maps do and don't feature tells you a lot about the world view of the map maker. So maps of the UK will often feature castles, but they're very unlikely to feature little country cottages. Um, and that's because we think things like castles and cathedrals are really important, um, whereas country cottages are less important. Right? So they can embed all these social values. Um, and in that way, maps can seek to persuade you of their view of the world and they're trying to persuade you of what they take to be important and so in terms of questions philosophers have for cartographers i think we always want to know what are your motivations for creating this map what is it that you are trying to tell the readers about and what are the non-obvious things you're trying to tell a reader about so when a map maker is picking out tourist sites why are they picking this site rather than another 
Descartes said, traveling is almost like talking with those of other centuries. Did researching and writing about these philosophers bring you closer to them to a point where you sort of gain new travel companions? It really did, yeah. I, I've done a lot of work on historical philosophers, but generally I'm just looking at their theories. The wonderful thing about working on the philosophy of travel was that I got to look at philosophers' travel journeys. So I really got to read about Descartes' travels around Europe, for example. And, and through that, I came to feel closer to some of them. So to give you an example, John Locke kept extensive travel diaries when he's wandering through Europe during political exile in the 17th century. And, and some of them are really funny. So he records staying in this dreadful inn and he talks about how the smell in the room would have quite extinguished him were it not for a handy large hole in the wall <laughs> letting in lots of fresh air. Yeah, and it really gave me a sense of who these philosophers are as people. Traveling isn't a right, it's a privilege. Does this awareness make it all the more special for you? Definitely, yeah, it really does. And in fact, during lockdown, that fact has really, really come home to me. And, you know, I'm lucky. I've been able to travel a lot in my life. And suddenly, the walls have come down and traveling anywhere is really hard. And it's really driven home just how lucky people who can travel easily are. And this is very much a privilege that some people in the world have and others don't. And I hope, you know, as lockdowns begin to lift, I hope one of the silver linings of the crisis is that people will become more aware of travel as a privilege and that it will be extended to more and more people. Recognizing that travel takes time and money, are you aware of any organizations that make travel more accessible or available to all? That's a great question. There is certainly lots of local organizations I've come across um, like that helps specific school children, for example, um, like take a trip to France to improve their French, things like that. But I'm not aware of global organisations or even big national ones that seek to do that. Um, I presume there must be some. If you hear of any, I'd be glad to know of them. Definitely. And when you're travelling to new places, how do you soak it all in while avoiding that prepackaged feeling? That's a really hard thing to do, I think. Um, I try to soak things in by coming into contact with the world directly. So trying not to engage with the world like through my smartphone um, or through a tour guide that's acting as a kind of middleman between me and the stuff around me. I'd rather wonder about without technology and, and, you know, speak to people who actually live there and try and get a sense of like the landscape and the society that I find myself in. And I, I definitely think that it's possible to get off the beaten track, just do things by yourself mm -hmm. and, and take the lesser, the less obvious tourist routes. I think this really is possible. I have this problem where everywhere I go, I just want to try their best tacos. And I realize this is something that I can just do back home. So maybe I should try some new local cuisine. I like that very much, yes. But are you trying tacos in every country? 
in every country. I seek out a good hike and some good tacos. <laughs> I really like that idea. I'm Irish and I find I cannot help but try out the local Irish bar, wherever that might be. And sometimes they are dreadful. <laughs> but it's often an experience. What makes a good local bar? I should say that although I'm Irish, I don't live in Ireland and I don't have an Irish accent, as your listeners can probably detect. Um, but a good, cosy Irish bar um, is one with interesting things on the walls as well as interesting drinks. And I guess one that feels warm and welcoming. You've said what really matters with travel is the sense of unfamiliarity. Why is this novelty so important and how you seek this out? I think that what distinguishes a travel trip, if you like, um, from a regular trip to the grocery store or even from going on a business trip abroad is this sense of unfamiliarity. So when I travel to New York for a conference, um, I'm going to be surrounded by very familiar things. I'm a Westerner. People will be speaking English around me. I'll be seeing work colleagues. I'll be using my laptop all the time. And although I've traveled many miles, it doesn't actually feel like like I'm traveling in the kind of grand romantic sense. And in contrast, I might travel far fewer miles to Poland or Iran. But because the things that I encounter there are going to be less familiar, let's say that I'm not going for a conference and I'm determined to immerse myself in the country, and then it begins to feel much more like traveling in the grand sense. And I think I think that's really what we're after when we travel, that we're really looking for this sense of the unknown of things that are other to our home experiences. Yeah, we're looking to gain new perspectives. And this unfamiliarity in culture and customs are exciting too. Montaigne said we should rub brains with people in foreign lands. How does this exposure to foreign culture broaden the mind? This exposure to foreign culture broadens our minds by helping us to question assumptions that we make about the world that we hold so deeply we don't even realize they are assumptions. And really basic things might be realizing that people drive on the other side of the road or that they don't use a knife and fork to eat with. And I think we can go even deeper than that and look at assumptions that we make about how society should work, how people should interact with each other. And I think it's very easy to assume that everyone in the world thinks the way that we do. And travel is a way of really shaking you out of that, making you realize that that's just not the case at all. Cultural competence can sort of remind us to leave our shoes at the door, and it can also teach us to leave our assumptions at the door. Yeah, I think exactly that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things Montaigne wanted to say was that even though travel is good for shaking you out of these assumptions, that also travel can make you realize just how similar different people around the world are. Mm. So he has this great discussion where he's talking about some tribes that he's read about in South America, and he's recounting the ways that their lives are different to ours. And then he goes on to talk about how similar their lives are to ours. Um, they're still engaged in 
forms of worship and marriage and family relations. Um, so he wants to say that there is as much that brings us together as divides us. But you've got to go out into the world and find out about both halves. And he says the aim of travel isn't to accumulate worthless knowledge, but to complement one's education through a comparative study. And the great philosophers knew that travel could either be used as an escape or as a form of education. Have you found it to be a mix of both or what have you found? So historically, leisure travel is rooted in this philosophical belief that it's good for your education. So if you look at the origins of leisure travel in the 16th, 17th century Grand Tour, what you get are philosophers like Francis Bacon, even physicist Isaac Newton, saying to young people, you must go off, travel around Europe, um, learn your languages, learn more about history and culture, and you will come back an improved person. The problem, of course, is that what often happened <laughs> is that these uh, young aristocratic men, that they were normally very wealthy and male uh, men, were going off into the world and what they were finding was lots of pleasurable vices, um, like uh, drinking and women and gambling. Um, so you end up with this kind of bright aspirational education bit of the grand tour and then if you like the kind of darker hedonistic pleasurable side of the grand tour and um, and i'm not sure that travel today is so clear-cut but definitely you can find both sides of this still running through many people's leisure travels i think like on the one hand lots of us want to go and and learn a bit more about history and culture. Um, but many people also want to have a good drink and, yep. um, and lie on a beach and enjoy themselves. Right, so I think these two elements still run through travel today. To quote Francis Bacon, travel in the younger sort is a part of education, in the elder, a part of experience. I think most people see this the other way around. What about you? I can see it working both ways, actually, I think. Um, I guess he has in mind the idea that the young are more easily impressionable and maybe the older mind is more mature, more capable of reflecting on the experiences that they've had. But I'm not so sure that's true. I think there are plenty of thoughtful, reflective young people traveling today. And on the other side of the coin, I have plenty of older dilettantes who want nothing more. Than to, than to indulge in, in a bit of pleasure on their holidays. Yeah, I see travel as a way to keep the mind flexible throughout life as we age. Yeah, I think that's very true, actually. I think in, engaging with the world in any form seems like a good way of keeping your mind flexible. And travel is a great way to do that. Going back to cultural etiquette, it makes us more respectful travelers. Does it also help us develop an awareness of our own cultural standards that we carry with us? I personally think it really, really does. I think that when you have spent time abroad coming home, you acquire a fresh appreciation for the good and the bad things about your own society. I think it gives you a new perspective um, because suddenly you are able to question assumptions about how your society works that perhaps you weren't even conscious were assumptions before. But mm. uh, it, yeah, I, things like 
like the way we treat our families or, or the way we treat strangers. And I think the differences can be really highlighted through travel. Or the way we treat nature for that matter. Yes, absolutely. The way we treat nature really matters and it's only going to matter more as the century draws on. In your travels through Alaska, what assumptions did you uncover that you didn't know you had? That is a great question. For me, the really obvious ones are political, I think. So as a, as a, as a British, a European, we're watching the politics being played out, seeing the discussions about Trump and Hillary. Mm. And going to Alaska, I met lots of Trump supporters and they gave me really new perspectives on, on why people like Trump so much for example, and, and why people were not so keen on Hillary. And from angles that I really hadn't considered before. And, and that was really fascinating. Right? So there was definitely the political stuff. And there was also the climate change stuff. And I met lots of people who were concerned about climate change in one way or another. And I had not appreciated just how much Alaska is on the forefront some of the issues that the world is facing and that also gave me a really new perspective I think we tend to think of climate change as something that's going to happen in the future or something that's happening to faraway places in seeing that you know somewhere like the US is being gravely affected it was really was really important to, to see and speaking of perspectives, um, I want to talk about your train views in Alaska. The, when you experience looking out at Denali and Mount McKinley, does it feel like you're just watching as a passive observer? Did you want to just jump off the train and become part of the scene? Yeah, I really wanted to jump off the train and go wandering through the scenery. I was not there at a great time of year for that. <laughs> so um, when it's below zero, um, in early spring, most of the national parks are closed to visitors. But absolutely, I wanted to go wandering around these places. Um, I got to visit various natural wonders of Alaska, but not those particular ones. And I really wish I could have done. When you're looking out at those mountains or the sea, nature can make us feel small. Why is feeling small in this sense so surprisingly beautiful? Anything that gives us a sense of how little we are in the grand scheme of things it is a positive thing. And again, it's about giving ourselves different perspectives. So in our own lives, I think we can often feel like we're really big and we're really important. You know, we are the focus of our own lives. We're, we're this network of family and friends and jobs. And, and then when you go to visit something like Mount Denali and you realize, you're not just physically tiny, but you're also, temporally speaking, with regards to time, really brief. I mean, most of us live for 70, 80 years if we're lucky. And I think that really puts our lives in perspective in a positive way. It makes us ask what really matters. And does it really matter that I'm spending time with these people or spending hours at work and um, surely there must be like more important things in life what are the more important things in life there is this philosopher 
that I suspect people will not have heard of, <laughs> but his name was John Ellis McTaggart. Uh, he was a British idealist writing around the turn of the 20th century. And he argues that the most important thing is loving relations between human beings. And although lots of McTaggart's philosophy is difficult to swallow, I think this particular thesis hits the nail on the head. I do think that our relationships with other people are the most important thing. And these beautiful landscapes and countries that we travel to can serve as mirrors where we can see ourselves and get to know ourselves better. Is there a certain place that mirrors or reflects back your best self? Actually, for me, parts of the Alaska trip, I think, serve to do that. So I really enjoy the feeling of stepping into somewhere that's completely unknown to me. And I got to do that in several places in Alaska. Um, Travelling by myself into unfamiliar landscapes really makes me feel like, um, you know, like I'm one of these old-time explorers <laughs> uh, venturing into, into new places. And of course, they're not really unexplored. They are only unexplored from my own personal perspective. Um, but I like that feeling. It's a, it makes me feel like I'm... Like I'm doing something really worthwhile with my free time, uh, like learning entirely new things about the world. And our troubles love to accompany us on our travels, but do you find it easier to shake them off when you're traveling? Yeah, I think I do. I think, again, because of the perspective shift that travel can afford us, I think a problem that can seem really large and overwhelming at home when you go out and you know you begin reflecting on what life is all about and or how this problem is really a relatively small brief problem and I think that allows you to feel the issues are tackleable in a way that when you're at home they seem like these big overshadowing things. I think travel can be really useful for that. Yeah, and that's why I try to plan those hikes into my trips wherever I go to make sure that I'm allowing time to do the inner work. Do you plan accordingly to have novel outdoor experiences that also allow you to do the inner work? I really enjoy the outdoor experiences, but for me, it's more important to have solitary ones. So they might be outdoor experiences or they might be wandering through a crowded city or checking out some ruins. And for me, it's the alone time that is useful in that regard, rather than the outdoor per se. Our friends and family like to ask, how was your trip? Knowing no one really wants to hear all the details. How do you approach this question? I actually... I am in the habit now of giving a relatively brief description of what I was doing. And I figure if they want to ask for more details because they're really interested, that's great. And they can, <laughs> but people tend not to. <laughs> I definitely think um, unless you're undertaking like, really unusual travel, then yeah, people's, people's interest is fairly limited. 
no one wants to talk about themselves and their travels, especially the dark side of their travels and the not so fun part of traveling alone. Assuming you aren't immune to bouts of loneliness and that feeling of, I wish I had someone to share this moment with, how do you manage in these times? Every now and then I have indeed felt lonely during my travels. And I guess I've dealt with it by, by reaching out to friends and family back home, whether it's by email or by picking up the telephone. But for the most part, I'm really glad that I've done most of my traveling by myself. I feel like, I feel like I've been, that I've come into closer contact with the world by doing it that way. That there's this travel writer who says, she dislikes to travel with friends because the two of them become this kind of European cell and that are resisting external influences. Whereas if she's by herself, she finds it easier to absorb what's going on around her. And I've definitely found that to be true on my own travels. I found that that same thing to be true when I go see movies alone. And then I can just kind of make my own opinions and judgments and leave and think that was fun, even if it wasn't a very good movie. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think there are some experiences. It's nice to not have other people's perspectives. That somehow it can be easier to reach your own conclusions if you're by yourself. And travel can reveal the values of home for us. What do you look forward to when heading home after your travels? <laughs> One of the biggest things I look forward to is property, <laughs> which by my standards means like strong black tea with milk. Um, and as far as I can see, it really is only the British that are into this particular style of tea and that many other people think in fact this is dreadful but that really is something that I welcome when I return home yeah, and I think also um, seeing friends and family and, uh, and re-entering those social networks it feels really important. The well-known T.S. Eliot quote, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. What does this mean to you? I definitely feel like I have a better understanding of the UK, where I live, as a result of spending time abroad. But for me, it really has given me a clearer perspective on the things that that Britain cares about and, and the the ways that Britain uh, is special and the ways that it's not so special and I have especially found this traveling through the states actually I think there's a tendency to believe that the UK and the US are really similar partly because of the history and partly because of the shared English language and, and then when I visited the US for the first time, which is really a long time ago now, uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, it, what struck me, in fact, is how hugely dissimilar they are. And I think that the shared language provides this illusion that the two countries have lots in common. It, and in fact, they're really different. And, and these kinds of insights I really value. When I watch the news, they help me understand what's going on a bit better. And when we're hiking, I like to hike and listen to future podcast guests, audiobooks, and then take voice memo notes about things I want to ask them. Do you have a similar process as a writer when ideas come to you? 
I do. I, so I always have um, a notebook with me, like really an old school notebook rather than a digital one. And yeah, I'm often taking down notes. Um, the problem, of course, is when you come to start writing that you end up with <laughs> enormous quantities of disjointed notes that you somehow have to piece together, jigsaw-like, into an order. But yeah, definitely. When I have thoughts about things, I have to write them down. Yeah, similar, like our nature thoughts and our shower thoughts. Would you ever consider putting out a book of just your travel aphorisms? That's a really lovely idea. It's not something that has ever occurred to me. I think I would have to be confident that I had enough of them <laughs> to form a book. But certainly I have enough to form a, a blog post of some kind. That would be fun. And Emily, my sister is a solo world traveler and she manages to feel safe wherever she goes. Any words of wisdom for solo female travelers who are maybe a little fearful? This is something I've thought about a lot. And I think the best advice I have is to do a little bit more forward planning than you would otherwise. So things like make sure that you have your first accommodation night booked before you arrive. Um, turning up at a bus station and not knowing where you're going to stay when you're a solo woman, I think, I think you're a bit more vulnerable then to people with... Uh, yes, with shady ideas than you might be otherwise. And, and also things like just know in advance how you're going to get from the bus station to where you're staying. And I don't think that you need to plan out a whole trip in advance at all. I never have. And in fact, I think you'd lose a certain amount in spontaneity by doing that. But having a vague idea of what you're going to do and always having that first night booked, I think is really important. And then I guess always asking other travelers. And um, people generally have lots of tips on, oh, this is a good place to stay. This is not a good place to visit and so on. I found that really helpful. I, there are, you know, as your listeners will be aware, there are so many um, solo women travelers now. There's, there's really strong networks and there's websites devoted to it. And, and, in general, I, I personally have found it a really positive experience, especially when it comes to meeting local women. And I find that women approach me in a way that they just don't when I'm with other people. And that's been really nice. You get to have fun conversations about what local life is like that I think otherwise I would have missed out on. Thank you for sharing that. And then being a seasoned traveler, I have to know, what are your Airbnb non-negotiables? <laughs> I'm not much of an Airbnb person, actually. Um, it tends to be backpacker hostels. Um, but gosh, especially now I'm older, I really do appreciate clean bathrooms. <laughs> um, that has become more important to me. Um, with Airbnb, I guess, especially if I'm traveling by myself, um, I want the, the host to be well-rated. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'd stay with someone who didn't have any recommendations, for example. And then if you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? I am, yeah. Um, I'm reading some very geeky philosophy books, which I suspect would not be of huge interest to your readers. I'm currently reading one about Henry Bergson, uh, this French 20th century philosopher who thought that time is the most important thing. Um, and I'm also reading a book about... 
women's engagement with the sea through literature and it's called salt on your tongue and the idea is that to look at the sort of sort of forgotten and neglected ways that, um, that women have thought about the ocean well thank you for sharing those and then if you could have a drink with anyone in history who would you choose and why i think i would choose i think i would choose rene descartes actually and i would really like to sit him down <laughs> and like, quiz his brain about philosophy there are so many things he wrote that are difficult for us to understand uh, for example, he has this whole story about how the universe might have been created from moving, swirling bits of matter. Um, and it's really hard to understand the details. And I would really like to say to him, now, come on, Descartes, <laughs> like, what did you actually mean by this? Um, he also has this peculiar view where the world appears to move, the planet Earth appears to move around the sun, um, but he says that it doesn't really, um, and I'd really like to know, we really worried about, you know, the Inquisition, and uh, is that why you kind of disguised your view um, of heliocentrism or not? I suspect it'd be quite a serious drink now that I'm saying these things out loud. I would love to listen in on that conversation. And then I'm just curious, who would you dread traveling with most when it comes to philosophers and who would you love to have as your travel companion i think i would dread traveling with bertrand russell i suspect that he would talk so much that <laughs> I, this would really annoy me after a while um, i mean the man published more than 80 books throughout his lifetime and i suspect he would be verbose <laughs> In terms of who I'd like to travel with, actually, I'd quite like to travel with someone like Immanuel Kant, who argued that travel is not important. Kant thought that he could learn everything he needed to about the world by, learn, by reading books, that that was all that's necessary. And I think I'd quite like to drag him around some countries and see whether he really stuck to that after actually having gone out and seeing the world from behind the pages of a book. That's interesting because books can serve as these location independent vacations, but it's much better to read a book with a view. Mm, I, yeah, I think that's true. I think books are really important and they can be really informative. Are they a substitute for actually visiting a place? I'm not at all sure. All right, Emily. So if people want to find you, they can go to emilythomaswrites.co.uk and find you on Twitter at Emily T. Wrights. I'll have links to the meaning of travel in the show notes. Where else do you want people to go to find you? My website and Twitter are the big places. Thank you for that. All right, Emily. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for all your insight. Oh, thank you very much. It was lovely. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakoba.